0: and welcome to Haunted Up North, the cheeky little podcast dedicated (laughs) to the telling of real-life paranormal experiences from the north of the UK. I'm your host, Victoria, and I really hope you find yourselves scintillated, scared, and most importantly, entertained by the spectral tales I'm about to tell you today. Did you like my some sort of London accent at the start there? (laughs) Apologies if you didn't. I must admit, I didn't like it either. I'm ashamed. Ashamed and afeared of my own willingness to do it in the first place. Although it's probably given you a handy clue, as if you didn't already know what the title of this episode is, about what's heading for your ears in this, can you believe it, 10th episode of Haunted Up North. 10th free episode that is. There are a slowly growing number of extra episodes based on places from across the entire world over on Patreon under my little side hustle Haunted Some More. That's www.patreon.com slash haunted up north. But yes, today is the 10th episode of this highly important podcast shiz and I'm going to do something a little bit different. It may shock you, but for a while I've been wanting to do an episode about the Highgate Vampire, and I was going to save it for Haunted some more, but then I realised Highgate Cemetery is in North London. I mean, it's not massively important where it is, because we can do what we want, can't we really? I'm not a Northern British elitist, as I keep reminding everyone on here. But the fact that Highgate Cemetery is in North London brought me untold joy, regardless, as it rather wonderfully fits with the Haunted Up North theme. Doesn't it? So I'm doing it, and you're going to listen to me talking about it. Before we begin talking about Highgate Cemetery, I'd just like to give a shout out to someone who messaged me on Instagram in response to Hun number 8, Haunted Up North episode number 8 which was the Windhouse episode that talked a lot about the Isle of Yell in Shetland. The person, or people, rather, who messaged me were a couple who've been on the telly, the actual telly. It's Elaine and Jen Cook from A Country Life for Half the Price, presented by Kate Humble. Elaine and Jen documented their move from Exeter to Shetland on the telebox in 2020 and their story is told in the very first episode, episode number one. So they moved from Exeter to live in the Isle of Yell, Shetland, and they're very familiar with Windhouse and even suggested when they message me they might spend a night up there in the dark. So if they do, I hope they share their experiences with us. Share your supernatural experiences with us, Elaine and Jen Cook. But anyway, they actually messaged me to say that the estuary I mentioned that I thought was an estuary in the episode, I wasn't quite sure at the time whether the estuary that sits beside Windhouse is actually an estuary or not, but it's not. It's not an estuary, it's a Vaux. And a Vaux is a small bay or narrow sea inlet in Orkney and the Shetlands. So thank you for correcting me, Elaine and Jen Cook, off of A Country Life for half the price. That information is much appreciated, and I've enjoyed learning something new about the beautiful place in which you both live. Uh, Adventure Shetland also messaged me, which was really nice, to say they enjoyed the episode. So thanks again to them for their support, and for helping me gather a lot of the research I needed with which to put that spooky instalment together. Please do check out their videos on YouTube to hear and watch some super scary stories of their own. So getting back to Highgate Cemetery. So I first became truly aware of the magic of Highgate Cemetery when I read a book by Audrey Niffenegger, who's most famous for writing The Time Traveller's Wife. But the book I'm referring to is one entitled Her Fearful Symmetry, which is a ghost story set in Highgate Cemetery and it's one of my favourite novels. It's so beautifully and descriptively written and it's made me, it's it's just, I'm hooked on the whole Highgate bug now, for the rest of my life, ever since I read that. I'd wholeheartedly recommend reading or listening to it because it's fab. Also, Neil Gaiman's The Graveyard Book, which is absolutely amazing as well, is inspired by Highgate Cemetery and that's another of my favourites. It's particularly atmospheric and moving. I think Highgate Cemetery has inspired a lot of literary works and films, and those are just two of the ones that I've read. But if you'd like to find out some more about books that are inspired by this graveyard, go online and have a look. Wikipedia has a good list if you'd like to carry on the enthusiasm for this location after this episode has ended. So Highgate Cemetery, what is it? It's a cemetery in Highgate, in North London, as I've said in the borough of Camden, England. Highgate itself is a suburb of North London at the north-eastern corner of Hampstead Heath, 4.5 miles north, northwest of Charing Cross. At its centre is Highgate Village, which has a lot of Georgian shops, pubs, restaurants and houses, with much pleasant greenery and woodland stuff going on around it. But the thing it is probably most famous for is its big old cemetery, the construction of which dates as far back as 1839. It's one of seven cemeteries, otherwise known as the Magnificent Seven, that in the 1830s and early 40s were built around the outside of central London to accommodate the rising number of deaths that a uh, equally rising population, which is what London had in those days, inevitably brought. The inner city cemeteries were becoming very crowded, very smelly, very disease ridden, and very uncared for, with many corpses being buried amongst others in shallow graves and having quicklime thrown over them to speed up decomposition so the grave could be used again a few months later. Because of this, in the early 1830s, Parliament created the London Cemetery Company, founded by architect Stephen Geary, which decided that seven new magnificent cemeteries should be built. And these seven new magnificent cemeteries were Kensal Green, which opened in 1833, West Norwood, which opened in 1836, Highgate in 1839, Abney Park, Brompton, and Nunhead in 1840 and Tower Hamlets in 1841. Highgate, like its other six cemetery site friends, soon became a fashionable place to be buried and was much admired by the Victorians, who loved a bit of gothic tomb action. Which, as we talk about the aesthetics of the cemetery some more, you'll find all seven cemeteries are absolutely bursting with... Highgate consists of two sites, an east side and a west side. West side. Situated on either side of Swains Lane, next to Waterloo Park. The west side of the cemetery is the oldest part of the cemetery, and has loads of trees and shrubberies (laughs) and wildflowers, most of which have, according to Wikipedia, been planted and grown without human interference. And it's become an unofficial nature reserve, as it's also a haven for birds and animals, such as foxes. Can you imagine the midnight parties? The west side of the cemetery has a number of notably remarkable, uh, <laughs> things, <laughs> uh, I don't know what to call them, places of interest, buildings even, that makes it considerably more than just your average graveyard. One of these notably remarkable things is the Egyptian Avenue, inspired by none other than Egypt, as when the cemetery was founded, interest in that particular part of the world was pretty popular. Westside has its own spectacular entrance, but beyond that lies a gorgeous gateway flanked by a pair of giant obelisks, through which you can enter the Egyptian Avenue. It looks a bit like something out of The Hobbit or The Lord of the Rings, in a scene where they might visit the disused, overgrown, crumbling halls of the kings, (laughs) or the elves of old, hundreds of years after their society's demise. This avenue is lined with very old vaults, sixteen in fact, and it brings you out into the circle of Lebanon where catacombs of some of the wealthiest people of Victorian society were buried. On the inside face, the tombs are built in the Egyptian style, while the tombs on the outer face, which were added in the 1870s, are in the classical style. The Circle of Lebanon was built in a circle, in case you were unsure of what shape a circle was. And it was built around a huge 280-year-old Lebanese cedar tree, which was there before the cemetery was even built. It was actually part of the grounds of the Ashurst House and Estate, which was sold in 1830 and torn down to make way for the present St. Michael's Church, which is the parish church of Highgate Village, right next to the Highgate Cemetery that was opened for worship in 1832. Sadly, the tree was taken down in 2019 due to extremely bad decay and replaced with another. All things, unfortunately, come to an end eventually, but it's nice they replaced it with another. Above the Circle of Lebanon are the Terrace Catacombs, a gothic-style structure built in 1842, named after the fact it was constructed on the site of the previous Ashurst Estate terrace. It is 80 yards long, with room for 825 people in 55 volts, with room for 15 coffins in each. There are many notable and famous interments buried in Highgate West Cemetery. Too many to list here, but the ones I recognise most are Julius Beer, the owner of the Observer from 1870 to 1880, who has a very impressive mausoleum built for him and his family called the Julius Beer Mausoleum. Tom Sayers, the bare-knuckle boxer, who has a lovely grave with a carving of his mastiff lion on top, as lion was chief mourner at his funeral, Catherine Dickens, wife of Charles Dickens, John and Elizabeth Dickens, his parents, Fanny Dickens, his sister, Stella Gibbons, who wrote Cold Comfort Farm, the actor Bob Hoskins, the lovely singer-slash-songwriter George Michael, Henry Newton, co-founder of Windsor & Newton, the Fine Art Products Company, Christina Rossetti, poet and sister of Dante Gabrielle Rossetti, a very famous English poet, illustrator and painter, Gabriel Rossetti, their father, Francis Rossetti, their mother, William Michael Rossetti, co-founder of the pre-Raphaelite movement. Lots and lots of Rossettis, including Elizabeth Siddle, wife of Dante Gabrielle Rossetti, She was a very famous muse for the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood, and she's in quite a few of their famous works, most notably John Everett Millet's 1852 painting Ophelia. She was buried in the grounds of the West Cemetery in 1862, but quite gruesomely, around seven years later, her husband had her grave dug up in order to retrieve a handwritten book of his poems that he'd laid inside the coffin. That's quite a morbid tale in itself. He put her back afterwards. Or so I've read. But you can go online for a full list of famous Highgate Cemetery buried people. However, allocating yourself or your loved ones a plot inside Highgate Sem, that's the cool way of saying Highgate Cemetery. Um, Allocating yourself a plot there became so fashionable that in 1856 it was extended by an extra 20 acres, and this area became known as the East Cemetery, meaning that the old, original one, that uh, by this point had over 10,000 graves in it, was now referred to as the West. The first burial to occur here was in 1860 of a 16 year old baker's daughter named Mary Ann Webster. And since then, like the West Side, East Side has got its own fair share of well known and famous interments. Douglas Adams, author of A Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, is there. Jeremy Beadle, who, according to Wikipedia, was not just a writer and television presenter, but also a curator of oddities. I didn't know that. George Eliot, the novelist, though if you're looking for her, her grave is inscribed with her real name, Mary Ann Cross. Karl Marx, that's a biggie, he's got a massive grave with his face on it. And there are lots lots more, like I said, go online for a full list of who's buried there. Karl Marx, who died in 1883, his grave is the most visited grave in Highgate Cemetery, and it's decidedly one of the most impressive. By the turn of the 19th century, the appeal of extravagant funeral services was losing its hold over the British public, with less glitzy gravestones- <laughs> I've written ravestones. stones! <laughs> I hope they are having raves at night, all these groovy ghouls. But yeah, less glitzy ravestones stones were being favoured as a form of memorial, and maintenance of graves fell into decline as relatives passed or moved away. And by 1960, the London Cemetery Company was declared bankrupt and was absorbed into the larger United Cemetery Company. But then after 15 years, the funds completely ran out and Highgate's gates were closed. However, in 1975, the Friends of Highgate Cemetery was formed with a hymn. The aim to promote the conservation of the cemetery its monuments and buildings, flora and fauna, for the benefit of the public as an environmental amenity. A great amount of conservation I was gonna say conversation, there's been loads of conversations going on all the time, but there's been a great amount of conservation carried out since then and both sides of the cemetery are once again open for burials to take place in. So if you fancy a trip to London, you can visit Highgate Cemetery yourself. East Cemetery is open every day, apart from Christmas Day and Boxing Day, from 10am to 4pm. There's a 5pm close for lighter months between March and October. West Cemetery is open during the same time, but this is only available to view via a guided or self-guided tour. Tickets for which you can buy online through the Highgate Cemetery website, so I'll add the link in the source material for this episode. If you can't travel, you can visit Highgate Cemetery yourself for free via technology. There are loads of videos online of people wandering about the place, so hitch a ride on their ticket to get a good look at some of the aforementioned attractions. Shrubberies, As is my way, I like to give a little or a lot of background in these Haunted Up North episodes before I get to the nitty gritty of the subject. The main attraction of the latest Hun chapter. Which is, of course, the curious case of the Highgate Vampire. What a totally terrifying subject matter, that sounds. I like vampires, you know. Any film with a vampire, werewolf or zombie in it is generally never rubbish in my opinion, so you can see why this story about a potentially real-life, or at least enthusiastically talked about as though it were a real-life vampire, appealed to me. I first came across the story of the Highgate Vampire when I was tentatively researching Highgate to see if anyone had seen any ghosts in there, and you can imagine my delight when this research yielded a string of headlines like The Hunt for a Vampire in Highgate Cemetery The Curse of the Highgate Vampire The Bizarre True Story of the Highgate Vampire Feud And my personal favourite Vampires, Magic Jewels and Headless Bodies So the Highgate Vampire was a media sensation surrounding reports of supposed supernatural activity at Highgate Cemetery in the 1970s. According to Vampires, Magic Jewels and Headless Bodies, Western culture in the 1970s was awash with a morbid fascination of the occult, with bands like Black Sabbath dominating the wireless (laughs) It wasn't that long ago and films like The Exorcist and The Wicker Man scaring everybody silly, and it was also the decade of the Enfield Poltergeist, another North London ghost story. So the 70s in particular were the perfect platform from which this sort of horror-orientated hysteria sprang from. On February the 6th, 1970, a man named David Ferrant wrote to the Hampstead & Highgate Express to say, that on the night of 24th of December 1969, whilst walking past Highgate Cemetery, he'd witnessed the apparition of a ghostly grey figure, and wondered if anyone else had experienced anything similar in this particular North London suburb. A few days later, reports flooded in from people who'd been plagued with a variety of unexplained phenomena in and around the grounds of Highgate Cemetery, such as the apparition of a spectral cyclist, a woman in white, a figure wading into a pond, a pale, gliding form, bells ringing, and voices calling. However, a collection of associated supposed witness accounts sparked a particular interest from the general public. One night in 1963, a couple were walking home down Swains Lane, when they passed by the cemetery's north gate and came face to face with a tall, dark figure floating behind the railings with a ghoulish, contorted face. In 1967, two teenagers claimed that as they were walking home along Swains Lane, they saw a vampire or something likening to the undead rising from inside a grave near the Highgate Cemetery's north gate. Another teenager awoke one night to feel something cold and clinging that left visible finger marks on her hand, while other individuals reported a tall man in a hat with glowing blood-red eyes walking right through the cemetery walls and a man walking his dog saw something that appeared to look like black treacle slide from the street in Swains Lane, over the wall into the cemetery. In early 1970, several animals were found dead, with their bodies drained of blood and slashes across their necks. And it wasn't long before self-proclaimed exorcist and vampire hunter Sean Manchester declared that the people of Highgate were not witnessing a harmless earthbound apparition, but a vampire. And not just any vampire, a King Vampire, who was a medieval black magician who'd practiced magic in Wallachia, the home of Dracula, before being buried in the cemetery. He believed this King Vampire's body had been resurrected by a modern Satanist so that his body could stalk, in demonic form, the Highgate Cemetery grounds at night. This revelation led both David Farrant and Sean Manchester to vow that they'd destroy this evil entity that was terrorising Highgate, and on Friday the 13th of February, 1970, a full-on televised vampire hunt was scheduled, complete with dozens of vigilante vampire hunters, all holding wooden stakes, combing the graves of Highgate in the hope they'd catch the ghastly spectre and swiftly dispatch him with their homemade weapons. Despite the efforts of law enforcement to control the mob, several graves were sadly opened and corpses were beheaded and mutilated with spikes. In August, during the same year, a woman's hundred-year-old corpse was found decapitated and burned near her grave, and a few weeks later Farrant was discovered creeping about a churchyard with a wooden stake and crucifix in his hands. Some days after this, Sean Manchester returned to Highgate Cemetery and apparently forced open the doors of a family vault after being guided there by a psychic helper, presumably with the idea that vampires lived in there. And upon lifting the lid of a coffin, he was about to drive a stake through the corpse that lay inside it until a friend convinced him not to and to just leave some garlic and incense there instead. David and Sean, though in agreement about the presence of a vampire stalking the streets of North London, were fierce rivals, each claiming to own the narrative far more than the other. Manchester was the founder of the British Occult Society, while Farrant was team the British Psychic and Occult Society, and when Manchester published his 1985 book The Highgate Vampire, Farrant then produced his own called Beyond The Highgate Vampire in 1991. Their feud culminated in 1973 in a heavily advertised magic duel, and rumours abounded within the media that they were even planning to sacrifice a cat in the presence of naked virgins. This duel was organised to unfold on Parliament Hill in Hampstead but for whatever reason, perhaps they got magicians right or couldn't find any willing cats or naked virgins, the two men called the whole thing off let's call the whole thing off. Ferrant was arrested and jailed in 1974 for grave desecration, a charge he always denied, and for sending voodoo effigies to two police officers. He died in 2019, which brought an end to the decades-long feud between the two men, and Manchester retired from public life in 2013, stating he intended to devote the rest of his existence to creative contemplation. The whole Highgate vampire fever finished in 1973, when Sean Manchester claimed he'd finally killed the elusive vampire in a building called the House of Dracula in Crouch End. Some sources say that Manchester didn't claim to have killed King Vampire in the House of Dracula. And that he killed him after finding an evil creature with fierce eyes and drawn-back lips in a black coffin back at Highgate, which he then stabbed with a stake through the heart and subsequently burned. Or did he? Because in 1991, a man named Declan Walsh claimed he saw a tall, very thin man dressed in Victorian style walking through the lock gates of Highgate, and another witness claimed to have seen a floating figure moving from the east to the west side of the cemetery. It's quite funny, isn't it, this story, despite the gruesome elements involved. It's obviously not very funny to hear of graves being desecrated, but it does make me laugh. The whole desire for escapism that those two men, in my mind, probably needed in order to enjoy life that little bit more. Perhaps not in the right way, but in their own way. And I I don't really blame them, because reality can be very boring, and sometimes even intensely distressing. And the fact that I'm sat here, myself, telling stories about ghosts with my life, perhaps I'm no different. It's better than watching the news and getting massively depressed, isn't it? So why not go on a vampire hunt instead? It's far more entertaining. However, the house of Dracula that I just mentioned a minute ago, the house where Sean Manchester might have said he killed a vampire in, is another interesting topic, whether you want to believe that Manchester drove a wooden stake through a vampire's heart inside it or not, that I think is worth telling you a little bit about, because it kind of goes hand in hand with the whole narrative of the Highgate occult craze. The House of Dracula is a gothic mansion on Avenue Road on the borders of Hornsey, Highgate and Crouch End, with a rather spooky reputation, particularly during the 1960s and 70s. It was built in 1876, and in 1969 it was ravished by a fire. Before this fire occurred, it was reportedly lived in by an Irish lady, and although this occupant herself was said to be extremely pleasant, visitors told of an overpowering sense of eerie foreboding, prompting them to exit the building as soon as they'd entered it. After the fire had occurred, witnesses described strange flickering lights during the hours of darkness, while the smell of incense was detected coming from the building to those who passed it on the street outside. The sound of muted chanting could also be heard when the moon was at its fullest. One day, when a gang of youths decided to trespass and investigate the inside of the property for themselves, they found the remains of ceremonial rituals, while the walls themselves were marked with unusual symbols. At this point, it was revealed that the burnt-out mansion had become an undercover meeting place for witches and dark magicians, in which they conducted strange and mysterious practices. When local newspaper, the Hornsey Journal, interviewed these alleged members of this particular occult society for an article entitled What Goes On at the House of Dracula? They said that yes, they'd been practising spooky rituals there, but that the house itself was even spookier than them. They stated that it was haunted, and that they'd heard the sound of disembodied footsteps and unexplained bangings, a presence on the stairs, a suffocating sense of being watched, and one night a curious youth unrelated to the group, who'd made his way onto the property, said he was chased down the stairs by something invisible. All this supernatural drama, however, wasn't appreciated by the House of Dracula's more conservative neighbours, so in the late 1970s it was converted into a block of sheltered flats which it remains to this day, although the original 1876 Gothic arch and entrance has been retained as a nod to its Victorian heritage. I couldn't find any evidence of anyone reporting anything supernaturally untoward in this relatively newly converted block of sheltered flats, but today reports of ghosts at Highgate Cemetery itself are limited to only a handful of unexplained apparitions. One of which includes sightings of an old woman with long hair who races about the gravestones looking for her children whom she is said to have murdered in a fit of rage and a figure who simply gazes into the distance, vanishes when approached, then appears in another spot to continue staring into space. Although the 60s and the 70s, 1960s and 70s, seem to be the two decades of focus when talking about when all this spooky Highgate stuff began, Tales of ghosts and spectres, however, roaming the Highgate's pathways, didn't begin in the 1960s, or with the Highgate Cemetery Vampire. The earliest account of a ghost being reported there began in 1626 and involved none other than Sir Francis Bacon, one-time Lord Chancellor of England, also writer, philosopher and amateur scientist, and the ghost of... a chicken. A chicken. The following encounter I'm about to relate apparently took place in Pond Square, although the pond that it refers to has long since been filled in. But the story about the ghost of a chicken <laughs> came about as a result of the fact that Francis Bacon was one of the first people to put forward the theory that refrigeration might be used as a means of preserving meat. So on a freezing morning in January 1626, Francis Bacon decided, whilst in the company of an acquaintance named Dr Winterbin, to put his refrigeration theory to the test by purchasing a chicken, killing it, and stuffing it with snow. Nice. Not long after this, Bacon caught a chill, was taken to Arundel House, where he subsequently died. Since then, and to this day, there have been reports of a phantom white bird resembling a plucked chicken that appears from nowhere and races around the square with a frenzied flapping of wings. In 1943, a man named Terence Long was crossing Pond Square late at night when he heard the sound of a horse's hooves and the rumble of carriage wheels. With a loud, piercing shriek, the ghostly chicken appeared, raced around the square, then eventually disappeared. In the 1960s, a broken-down motorist encountered the same apparition, as did a couple whose snogging was abruptly interrupted by said chicken materialising above, completely out of thin air, and dropping right down next to them. That's so weird. (laughs) Poor chicken. I'd be pretty distressed by the whole memory of my death if that was the way in which it was performed. A chicken doesn't have any less right to be a ghost than anyone else just because it's a chicken. But nonetheless, it does offer a slightly more lighthearted way to finish off some undeniably morbid narratives. I hope you enjoyed it anyway. I hope you enjoyed all of those stories, and I hope you've enjoyed all ten? Or ten and a half, really, if you count the sneak, spook, or whatever I called it, pre premiere episode I released all the way back in early October last year. I hope you've enjoyed all ten, ten and a half. It seems so long ago that I did the first one, even though it hasn't even been even a year. Uh, sorry, even half a year. <laughs> it's definitely not been a year, but it hasn't even been half a year since I started this whole thing. I've been really humbled by everyone's support for Haunted Up North, and I often have a peek at how many of you have been tuning in from all across the world. It's absolutely inspiring to see that someone has been listening to my little voice from all the way over in Las Vegas or Lan And whoever you are, or wherever you're from, I want you to know that I massively appreciate you taking the time to press play and hear what I have to say. About ghosts, obviously. The more we listen, the more we connect, the better life will be. Especially for the little people like you and me. So to all the little people out there in every part of the world listening to little old me from little old Britain, thanks, and I mean it. I hope you found these ghosts to be good ones, and that you were suitably entertained by them. Long live this lovely world and all who haunt her, and may her power forever compel you to never presume that chickens can't be ghosts as well, because equal ghost rights for chickens are what we should all be about. Remember to send me your doorstep ghosts, and if you fancy some extra hun action, head on over to Patreon and sign up for Haunted some more. See you later, bye! vampires, magic jewels and headless bodies.